Well, it's my pleasure to welcome uh, Ola Sheeran from Bureau Ola Sheeran uh, to uh, conclude our formal sessions today at WAF Virtual. Uh, Ola has been a great supporter of World Architecture Festival. Uh, his interlace housing in Singapore won the Building of the Year Award when we were in that uh, fine country. Um, he's spoken at WAF. Um, his, uh, his, his career has spanned the world uh, from, uh, from Beijing to many parts of Europe. And I suppose um, if one were to um, try to uh, uh, summarize what he's all about, I suppose in the context of our current condition, uh, there will be people who sort of kind of accept what's happening. They'll try and mitigate a little bit. Uh, they'll adapt as far as they can. But then there are others who will use these circumstances to rethink, to reimagine, and to radically transform. And I think it's fair to say that Ola would be on that end of the spectrum. Uh, so welcome, and we very much look forward to your presentation. Thank you, Paul. Uh, it's great to be back, uh, even if virtually uh, this time. Um, of course, um, this time has changed a lot for all of us. Um, the virtual existence is maybe nothing so new to some of us. I think my life for the past 15, 20 years was dominated by it. Um, however, then really uh, for the opposite reason, I feeling so much that all my communication had necessarily to be virtual with all the offices, all my collaborators. Now the communication is virtual because we can no longer be together. But what has lockdown life really brought to us? Many great challenges, many tragedies. It certainly also brought time to think. And I think it has brought time to realize what we really miss that we once had, what was important to us. But maybe it has also made us think about the things that are maybe unnecessary that we could live without and things we maybe don't want to go back to even if we could the day after tomorrow. And I think that's a very interesting question for me in, in the way we're facing the time and the reality now. And we are facing a reality and a different one, but it's also really confronted us with realities that existed all along and yet maybe we were just simply not so aware of them. There's one new reality that we all know, which is the Zoom or whichever other platform, the Zoom reality. It's all of us on little thumbnails on a computer screen. What I find so interesting about that is not purely on um, the human level, but actually as architects, if we were to look at this image and actually subtract everything human in it, um, there's still a lot left. And that's a reality that doesn't only exist since lockdown, that's a reality that existed all along. And it is the reality of the spaces we live in. And what I see here in the background is just one generic random image, but when you look at these backgrounds, you ask yourself if this is really the background you want to your own life, or if you would want to imagine a life with maybe a totally different background, with a different space, and with 
maybe a very different quality of life. And I think in, in that way, since all of a sudden we were confined to the spaces we inhabit, we realize how important not only the quality of life is as an abstract idea, but how important the quality of the space is that we inhabit and what are those spaces and what expe expectations do we have to the spaces. Now, there were many fast proclamations of what will change to space due to Corona from uh, the New Yorker, how coronavirus will reshape architecture. And we learn a lot of things. We learn that there will be empty desks, um, but we learn even more exciting things. We learn that partitions are really hot right now, that um, you're going to see a lot of plexiglass. And um, we can imagine life uh, encapsulated in wipeable surfaces, in distancing measuring tape, and in spaces that um, probably were never particularly sexy before. But if that is the proclaimed answer that architects and designer could have um, to this crisis, I think it's pretty depressing. If then we go one step further, we bring technology and we make sure that there are some devices that you know, alert us, start to beep, uh, all kinds of alarm sounds if we just get too close to each other. And we think that that would have been the life of the future. I have to say, um, I'm not sure we should really accept that as enough of an answer. Some of the whole situation reminded me of, of um, a film that's now over 20 years old that actually talked about the perfect life. Um, the Truman Show and Jim Carrey was a really happy guy that uh, had avoided the density of cities and uh, moved to perfect suburbia. And it seemed that one thing that uh, struck me when I, when I re-looked at this image was how perfect that suburbia was because actually every single person in that city was exactly socially distanced from the next. So it seemed to be the perfect model of the future of life, even in a social distancing uh, environment. So what have we learned uh, this year that uh, we need to stay apart? But already here, I also wonder who actually came up with the word social distancing. It, it makes us sound as if we're actually going to be totally asocial. I mean, actually, we're looking for physical distance from each other. I'm not sure we're looking for social distance. And I find already this misnomer kind of a tragedy because I think it, it imbues psychological disaster to a point and trauma that I wonder if it was all, all the right thing to call it. And now, of course, as architects, we wonder, so what would architectural distancing look like or urban distancing? What's going to happen to our cities and, and what will happen to the face of architecture? And of course, it's not, it's not quite as, as simple as that, but um, what will be the face of buildings in the future because of that? When this, this little moment happened 15 years ago and um, CCTV showed up in, in uh, The Simpsons as they were running a competition for the greatest icon in the world, um, imagine it would have been pretty tough to judge 
um, which building would win if they would have all looked like that. But even though we have now been very used to um, it being the other way around, so the people wear the masks, they look at the city, there have been precursors to that. It's not that the world didn't know masks and maybe the necessity of those before. Actually, in, in 2003, I lived in Beijing and, and it was SARS and there were masks, there was a lot of precaution, and it was an accepted and very clear and logical thing to do in order to contain what could have then also, then also become a very complex uh, health crisis. Um, there were, of course, other moments of masks. This was um, a very popular spot for wedding photography. Um, on a completely normal day without pandemic in Beijing, you can actually see CCTV here in the background. Um, it was one of the nice vantage points and it was simply the bad weather and air pollution that made people wear masks. Um, China, in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way, even had a, a better proposal for what we should put on our building in order to avoid a number of things, which was a giant underpants, because this building, as some of you may know, got the nickname um, Big Pants in, in Chinese. But uh, all the joking aside, uh, of course, this is an incredibly serious and important issue. And um, a while ago, I thought about uh, I, I thought about architecture and what I what I expect from architecture or what I would wish from architecture. And while form follows function, and I think a lot of the things we just talked about are again functional challenges that architecture has to has to face and has to solve to some extent. But I think it has to do more than that. It is not only corresponding to the distance we need, the sterile surface, but it is also about what it does to our lives and how we could maybe imagine lives and want to imagine our lives as something very different. And in that way, um, I want to revisit some of our old projects or show some of our new projects today in under exactly that perspective, because the question is, I think, really how we want to live. And the question is, what can we contribute with our architecture to the quality of the things that we search for and believe in? The first project is one that, um, Paul, you know very well, many of you may know, is indeed uh, the interlace in Singapore. And I want to go back to this project because it dealt with um, a, a very important aspect that I believe today is as important as then. And many of the things that I believe have now come to the foreground in our consciousness, space, light, fresh air, nature, the ability to be either with each other in as much as it is, it is possible or desired or not, because we actually also have the space to be apart from each other was one of the ideas that drove me to create this project 15 years ago. These are two images of Singapore. And back then I really asked, does architecture always have to be just about itself? Is every tower sufficient in its own isolated verticality? Or is the space of living together not as important as the space of living apart? So while the brief had suggested simply continuing 
12, uh, the, the, the typology of 12 towers in which, again, people would be very tightly stacked and actually incredibly closely together. I toppled the towers and started to stack them up in a hexagonal grid um, with one uh, idea in mind. That was the enrichment and complexification of space and the idea that space was not only indoor, but also outdoor. So suddenly the buildings do not create residual around them, but giant courtyards and gardens for the people to utilize, to move to from the inside of their apartments to enjoy the outdoor space. It was about creating a space that was interconnected and interlaced and that through all the openings and its permeability in a way um, created a stratification of socially different spaces. Spaces that would be entirely communal, where you could gather, where you could be partly alone, partly together or completely alone. A layering of different zones that would allow us as social beings to choose where we wanted to be. And of course, in times of a pandemic, these choices become even more important and these possibilities become even more important. But I believe it is the ultimate quality of those in our lives, which are the most critical of all. So we created incredibly functional layouts for this building. Every single uh, space, every floor plan had connectivity to outdoor space. Um, and because we stacked everything up uh, uh, horizontally and created these huge uh, gardens on top of the roofs, we were able to create 112% green space of the site area. So usually buildings take away from nature and here this building was able to amplify nature. And this is one of these gardens on the 13th floor of one of those terraces. So it is not decorative green as alibi, but it is habitat and space of living. Um, every apartment had ample outdoor terraces and balconies. And I think it is this interplay between indoor and outdoor and the consciousness towards the environment and sustainability that really allowed this project to, to go as far as it did. These were daylight studies because yes, natural light is critical. It was about optimizing the facades, both in terms of their shading capacities, but also their ventilation capacities. It was about proving that um, the, the figure of the building itself would provide so much shading that in the tropics of Asia, in Singapore, where the building is located, you would have enough shade to actually use the outdoor spaces all year round. And because of the stacking of the buildings and the permeability, the winds could flow through and the location of water bodies are creating microclimates that cool all these interior courtyard spaces. But it is really this incredible diversity and multiplicity of space inside this building that I think just proves again its relevance today. Because if you cannot leave your compound, but if your compound is actually able to give you so many possibilities to sit on your favorite roof terrace with view to the ocean or to the city center, um, go through the gardens, enjoy three-dimensional space, be on your balcony, far apart enough from others for air and light and yet together in a great community. Sunken gardens for uh, spa functions, biotopes that were installed, biodiversity, and really an idea that the, the drama of life and the diversity of life could find its place 
in a project that would mean something about how we maybe would like to live. Even back then, I thought we should not speak about all the fancy marketing talk. When, we, when, when I discussed with the client, I said, like, can we not talk about the very few really simple things that I think that matter to us? And I think these are the things that matter today in this time even more than ever. It is a connectedness to nature. It is a sense that we do live in a community and how can we structure the community between the space of the individual on one hand and the space of the collective on the other. But it is also, of course, space because we live in those spaces and if we're confined in them, how can we open them up and how can they give us an experience that gives us more? The second project to revisit here under the title Mute versus Communicative is that of a tower and it is Mahana Khan in, in Bangkok. The verticality of the tower today is completely unavoidable. We know we can no longer just build in the horizontal, but the verticality of the tower also encapsulates us, it encases us, it makes the building scaleless and actually the life of people and their connectivity to the outdoors and the city is hermetically sealed. And already 15 years ago, I thought we had to change that. We had to break open the mute shaft of the tower and, and reveal the grain of human inhabitation and do that not only to connect the enormity of a large tower to the small scale of the city around it, but really also to do that to create a three-dimensional and active space of living. And these are photographs of the, of the finished building. So not the idea of a formal gesture, but the idea of a three-dimensional space of life that connects the indoors and the outdoors, and that expresses the activity and human inhabitation of a tower as a message to the context and to the city. And you see here how each box is a living room, a bedroom, and each one of them creates a giant terrace on the 70th floor of a skyscraper. You can have a 30 square meter terrace, something that buildings and towers up to that point 15 years ago simply didn't have or couldn't do. We developed a system, a very special system for the facade where almost entire sections of the facade could open like garage doors in transparent and create out of, an, out of an enclosed space, effectively an outdoor balcony and naturally ventilated environment. And the idea was to celebrate the life of the people, not to isolate them, but to connect them, connect them more directly or connect them through their individuality and their actions that became part of the larger whole. Even the top of the building was surrendered back to the public. In a way, the freshest air probably you could get in Bangkok on, on top of the tallest building uh, in town. We created an, an observation deck, handed it back over to the public, and it's become um, an, one of the most active spaces really in the city ever since. And you see this little frame sticking out at the top, which I call the sky tray. It is actually the entire width of the building pushed out with a giant steel beam all covered in a glass floor and that to celebrate um, the enjoyment of the city um, through the visitors. There was, of course, 
a little reference to an, one of the most powerful, I think, images of, of architecture under construction ever um, in, in New York in the 30s, which uh, sort of, you, you can see how difficult it is to, to translate time into a, a contemporary society. But what of course still works is the incredible thrill that uh, a glass floor like that exactly 1000 feet above the city allows you to have as something that enriches and celebrates the life we live in. These are pictures, um, most of them actually not taken by us, simply picked from the internet as the building of course has become um, a, a, a magnet of memory. And I think it is less the question of, of Instagram or not, but I think it is the question of, of how a building can become part of the life of a city, part of the memory of a city, and part of the people that really live with it, inhabit it, and enjoy it. The third project that um, I think touches on another very important aspect, that of how buildings relate to the city and how do they relate to public space and how do buildings either take away from the public space of the city or contribute to it. This is a project also located in Singapore. It was, uh, It is located between these two formerly existing buildings on this little patch of no man's land. And again, you can ask yourself, is that the quality of space or the quality of city we want to inhabit? Each building cares for itself and no one cares for the context and the collective. The zoning regulations would have allowed us to build two monstrous volumes in between. Again, two pieces that simply don't care about what is around. But what I decided to do was to take these volumes and start to carve away from them, to basically cut out a series of urban spaces that uh, I, I wanted to define in order to utilize the buildings to create public urban space and create buildings that would integrate their neighbors rather than deny their existence and in a way repair a completely broken context. And you see here how suddenly this new ensemble um, creates precisely articulated urban space and a space that in return starts to, in a way, collect the energies, the urban energies of the public, the energy of the nature, of the winds, again, to, to create microclimates, collect winds and cool those spaces. But very importantly, to um, conceive the building as a civic nexus, as a place where people would come together, congregate, and yet a place that would allow them to not do that in a completely constrained and isolated way, but through the idea of what I at the time called a liquid landscape, the idea of a permeable ground where people can walk multiple paths, where you can approach this piece of land from anywhere and cross anywhere. You could also, in times like these, easily not cross paths and avoid each other because the space is simply conceived as one of freedom of movement and freedom of choices. And you see here um, the real built images of this liquid landscape of the different levels and paths that permeate the, uh, uh, um, the entire site. 
that is 24 open hours to the public that was not gated off as a community, but at the same time that gives so much space, light and nature back to the public domain. Finally, a project in, in Europe. And um, I think equally important, not only the question, how do we create new cities? Also, what do we do with the old cities and the old buildings we have in our city? This is a project in Frankfurt, and it is actually the conversion of an existing tower from, from the 70s. You can see a very heavy, almost monstrous structure, completely enclosed, completely hermetically sealed from its environment. And we were asked to think about if, if a building like that, instead of completely demolishing it and building something new from scratch, if we could reimagine this structure in a different way and actually turn it into uh, a space for living and apartments. So I thought besides just stripping the facade of a building and, and you know, giving it a new face, which changes very little about its, its actual inherent qualities, um, we wanted to intervene much more strategically. We had to, in any case, cut out all the floors that were dedicated to mechanical uh, equipment that was no longer necessary. We could fill those back in for more living space at the bottom. But instead of doing the same at the top, I simply sliced off the pieces that were no longer functional uh, and gained the possibility to add um, uh, a crown element. And then, because this building had this, this very interesting structural system of four mega columns with free spanning slabs in between, I wanted to emphasize this openness and horizontality and sliced in what I call the panorama plates. So a system of uh, horizontal slices that again establish a connectivity between indoors and outdoors uh, to fresh air, uh, to the space of the city and the nature um, with spectacular panoramic views that again, a new built building in the same, in the same way could have probably uh, never realized. And a building that I think again speaks of the desire to create a space for the quality of our lives as we inhabit it or as the buildings themselves participate in the context of the city. And now from the city to nature, how can we integrate nature in the city and in our architecture in a more explicit way? And how can the space of nature become uh, maybe a, a much greater asset to, to the buildings we do? This is a project located in, in Vietnam in Ho Chi Minh City, and it will be the new landmark tower in their new district, um, the, the colorful area you see here is currently entirely vacant, will be built as what they say, the new Pudong of Ho Chi Minh and our tower um, will rise uh, nearly 400 meters um, above the ground to, to proclaim the future um, of that urban, urban environment. But instead of and I said that before, already with the interlace, you could see, or even with, with duo, I do not believe in, in nature as a decorative element. I do not believe in uh, making an architecture that has a bad, ugly concrete wall, and then you try to stick a bit of green on it to hide the problem that you created. What I'm interested in is nature as a space of habitat and a space of living and a space 
that is inhabitable space. Vietnam has spectacular nature and a history of spectacular nature and the cultivation of that nature. We wanted to bring some of those, those uh, elements as, as a core identity of this country into the city and had this idea of mirroring part of the earth into the sky and said, why should nature only exist on the ground? And why could it not also be lifted up to heights um, where it simply never existed before? So we created what we called a sky forest, a portion in the tower in which we um, recreate a really magical world of, of uh, Vietnam's landscapes uh, that, that connect and tell a story in combination with the public, of course, this is public space, a viewing deck, amenities, restaurants, all combined. There will be a journey through these organic layers of landscape elements that suddenly inject into the architecture, again, a space for escape, a space for escape from your indoors, escape uh, uh, from, from your confinement, but also really the, the celebration of nature the city and everything around you. And of course, this idea does not only exist in the sky, it also comes down to the ground. The entire podium of the building is creating a giant terraced landscape um, of, of uh, uh, retail and entertainment areas, public functions that uh, in themselves will inject a type of public space and a type of space both for density when it is allowed, but also for the escape from it, as you can um, access all the various levels and terraces of this building at, at the same time. And thereby also this project really follows this idea of how we could improve the space of our life and how we can use architecture, the city and nature for the things we want to do. Finally, a new project and this a different one because it's an office building and it is about what will the future of work be now that we all work from home or from wherever we got locked down. And I think the answer to work can only be one that is not anymore about work only, that is about a combination of work and life. And how will we bring those two together? This is a project located in South China in Shenzhen, adjacent to Hong Kong, part of a, a master plan of a super HQ area that, that is being planned. And it will be the headquarters for ZTE, uh, one of China's largest uh, technology companies. The idea of this building was really, how do we create a space that is so incredibly flexible that the work of today as well as the work of tomorrow. And we know actually not so much about how, how, where this will be going, that both can be possible. And one critical aspect was to go away from the typical uh, problem of the tower of having a central core, a small perimeter uh, of space, uh, and then a curtain wall facade. We actually created floor plates that are the size of almost two football fields. So you have to imagine the scale um, of, of that building. And this scale simply allows us an enormous amount of flexibility in how we approach and plan that. We're, we've developed almost urbanistic strategies for how you could create public zones, private zones, 
for how you can create uh, uh, plazas, alleys, and create a system that is about an interactivity between the place of more traditional work and the place of collective gathering and creative exchange. But it is also a, a, a system and a scale that of course allows for very efficient zoning. It can allow for clean zones, for arrival zones, for if you like decontamination zones, if that is necessary, which a normal building would greatly struggle with um, accommodating those. It is a building that has multiple points of circulation, multiple cores and elevator shafts, so that not everybody has to squeeze through one single access point. It has internal um, secondary vertical connection points, so you do not always have to use uh, uh, elevators, but you can use internal atria to circulate. Um, but it also has a shift of each floor plate. So each giant floor plate not only has its internal um, uh, parameters, but it also always has 50% of its external per uh, um, perimeter uh, as an external terrace space. So that all workers within only a few steps can in a way leave the inside and go to fresh air on the outside. This allows us um, to create terraces throughout the building, to create cross ventilation through the building and provide for full connectivity. The lifting off of the building from the urban ground allows us to create a giant plaza. Again, a multiplication of public space and of green space um, uh, usable for the occupants of the building, but really also for the city as a whole. And finally, uh, maybe one of the most important elements of the building as a whole is this sinuous wave that cuts through the building and that creates two, two bulges. At the top of the building, a communal uh, club space connected to a vast roof terrace. And at the bottom, um, the, the entrance lobby and both elements connected via a diagonal atrium. And this big open space, yet again, helps to circulate fresh air but also creates co collective and collaborative connectivity throughout the structure. And I believe these, these ideas of how, how do we no longer think of architecture in singular domains, how, is it is, how it is no longer about where you work, where you live, where you do this, where you do that, because now all of a sudden we realize it has all collapsed. It currently has collapsed for problematic reasons because the lockdown forced you to work from your kitchen or your bedroom. But in a way, how interesting if the spaces that we inhabit would really allow us to do those things. If it is no longer about singularities and exclusions, but if we can imagine spaces that are creative enough, fantastic enough, and maybe social enough to allow us to live those fantasies in real life. And I want to end with a project that yet again, because all cinemas are closed. Um, eight years ago, I created a cinema that was about the idea of being in nature and with nature if you want to go and see the movies. It is a floating cinema in the ocean of Thailand near Phuket, Yao Noi. And uh, it was a project that um, 
basically built a raft uh, together with the local community of fishermen where we adopted their, their uh, technique, how they built their fish and lobster farms, um, pieces of used styrofoam, recycled old planks of wood. And I taught them how to turn a system that was there for pure livelihood into a system that could equally cater to enjoyment and the quality of life. And we hosted a film festival while gently drifting on the waves of the ocean, watching movies that uh, Joey Abichatpong and Tilda Swinton had curated, some of the first movies ever, a 1904 version of Alice in Wonderland. And it became a moment of wonder and wonderland for everything that we thought and dreamt about. And so at the end of all this, I think for me, this moment, this crisis, this year more than ever, it has changed a lot of things, but it also hasn't changed some. I think it hasn't changed the question, how do we live? But it has really made us think more and more, how do we actually want to live? Thank you. Ola, thank you so much for that. Uh, rather magical presentation, if I may say so, and a very nice blend of um, past hits, if I could put it like that, and then some of your latest thinking. I, I'm struck by um, the kind of creative power you seem to derive um, from working in Asian countries. Is that because the concept of zoning never really applied in those places in the same way that it did in Europe? Is there something about the blend of activities which has triggered a response in you? I think what, what interested me so much about working in Asia was the fact that 20 years ago, roughly 30, 20 years ago, when the big boom started, when Asia started to build, the interesting thing was Asia was aware of its own problem. It was aware of the fact that the way they had done things before would no longer work for their future. It was no longer applicable as a model to simply repeat the 80s, 90s hardcore housing blocks that were mass produced. And they realized we need to radically rethink what really matters in order to be fit for the future. And they wanted a future. And that was what was so exciting about it. And I think this is maybe what I learned from it, not to be stuck to the status quo, not to say like, well, this is how it is. And now we have this problem. So we have to live with this problem. And maybe we do a little bit here and we do a little bit there. But their courage to say, let's think anew. And I think now the whole world suddenly faces a problem. It's a different problem, but it's also a problem. It is that this pandemic has taught us that some things are simply not working the way they are. And now I think the question we are all facing as a collective society is with how much courage and with how much vision will we face that problem? And how will we go about it? And will we retreat to a sanitized surface? 
Or will we say, no, we need spaces of completely different qualities for our own lives that, of course, incorporate all the technicalities and annotations that are necessary, but don't these things have to go much further? And I think this is what Asia taught me over the past 20 years. But you see, at, at the same time, I have to tell you, we're now doing a lot of work beyond Asia. We're working, I just showed one project in Germany, we're working in Switzerland, we're working in North America, we're working in many other continents and many other countries. And I can see that much of what we learned there, you can, you cannot one to one transplant it because for me, architecture was never about a transplantation, but you can learn about those principles and equally apply their intelligence in different contexts. There was an interesting uh, remark made by one of our other contributors earlier this week who made the distinction between um, seeing things differently and seeing different things. And I wonder whether um, your experience, I mean, I'm thinking about the, the Interlace project, which when it won um, World Building of the Year, um, one of our judges who hadn't been on the super jury, but the, the following morning set off at breakfast time because he wanted to see it. We were all out in Singapore and he wanted to see it for himself to see if it was as good as the, 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 the jury thought it was. And a nice resident um, led him into their apartment and, and showed him all round it. And uh, he was able to report back that it was just as good uh, if not better than the, than the jury had considered. Now, I suppose that looking at that, um, there might have been an assumption, well, here's a new model of doing things. Ola Sheeran uh, won't concern himself with towers again. But of course you did, um, but in a rather different way. And I wonder what sort of, what, what modifications appear in successive projects as a result of the one you did before, or is it a completely brand new starting point every time? Well, first of all, of course, there is, I think there is an underlying core interest to, to the work we do. And uh, in, in a way, it, it really is the question, how do we want to live? And how could each project give us a new glimpse into what that could what that could be like. Of course, that is always there, but then the specific situation of each project, I think, is equally important to that kind of fundamental belief of the same question. So it, it has to be a reinvention in in every single case. And this is this is what we're trying to do. But I think there's another interesting thing that you that you touched on, which is um, he said, the, the, the jury member said like, well, we've seen the presentation, we've seen the photographs, let's go and see if it's actually as good as the pictures. And I think the truth of architecture is good architecture will always be better than the pictures because it's incredibly difficult to photograph because also it's not made for the single photograph to be posted on social media. Architecture is about space. The object of something is easy to photograph, is easy to consume as an image virtually, digitally on whatever platform. 
space and the psychology of space does not photograph. So if you do not go and feel it, and if you do not go and, and live it, I think you will never understand. And this is why it is so important to go to architecture, but ultimately that's what it is. It is physical reality that affects us as human beings and our psyche and our emotions. And I think this is what we're working for, to create a space of emotions. And I suppose that's particularly important in the way that you've kind of blended, I think, increasingly um, the relationship between inside and outside space. So it's not strictly zoned. Uh, it may be one thing at one time and something else at another time. Uh, and in that sense, the open space starts to take on some of the characteristics of three-dimensional space that even if it's not formally enclosed all the time, um, one could imagine that it is or that the open space itself constitutes a form of interior. Yeah, it, 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 is, this, it is both this aspect of, of hybrid nature between the two or, or it's that gradient and transition between the two. Because I think one of the greatest things that architecture can give you is choice, is to be able for yourself to modulate how open you want it to be, if you want to be inside or outside, or if you open things a little part. Like in the interlace, if you go to the ground into the theater courtyard, which is always full of people, or if you go into one of the roof terraces where maybe there are five, six people playing cards and doing other things, or if you retreat to one of the most secret corners where no one will ever find you. And I think it is exactly that diversity and, and richness of possibilities that I'm interested in, because I think that is a quality for us. This sounds like the making of a manifesto. I mean, have you thought about, or perhaps you have, I mean, formally making a proposition, you know, towards a new 21st century architecture? Maybe it's it's time uh, to to come back in a couple of months, and we should uh, we should present that. Very good. Um, a final couple of questions. Um, anybody looking at your Wave project in Shenzhen is is is, or some architects will be bound to be thinking to themselves, well, that's all very well because he has an unlimited budget and it's a headquarters building for a kind of probably a disruptive technology, very rich client, but how's that going to work with kind of ordinary uh, developers and, and everyday buildings? Are, are your ideas transferable to, to low budgets? And I accept the Archipelago Cinema was undoubtedly a low budget project, but then that was very particular. But what about uh, urban projects? So, um... Talking about the Shenzhen wave, uh, of, of course, I have to... Uh, th this project is, by the way, not built directly uh, for ZTE, but actually through a developer. So there is a developer in between who is actually an incredibly cost-conscious entity uh, that indeed brings all the controls that you are talking about. And like for many projects, there's always a challenge how to balance the ambition um, with a budget. But we have built all these projects and you, I think you remember very well that 
uh, again, the interlace is a great example because interlace is not high-end housing at the top end uh, of the pricing of the market. It was sold below the midpoint. It is not social housing, but it is sort of in between social housing and the mid-price point of what uh, uh, residential was selling for in Singapore at the time. So you could basically a, a young family, two children teaching at university was able to afford to live there. And this again acts as a proof that not every idea, just because it's radically different, has to come at a huge price tag. Well, I think that's a, a great moment to end on because um, I hadn't seen this presentation before the introduction. And I do think that, that rethinking and reimagining and radically transforming um, is, is what you've done and what you've achieved in the past and what you're continuing to do uh, with your current work. And I take great comfort from the power of the architectural imagination to have a transformative effect, not just on buildings, not just on public space, uh, not just on external spaces, but also to influence the way we think about the environment that we live, work and play in, and probably help us to demand even higher standards in the future. Uh, Ola Sheeran, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Paul. Thanks.